All right, go ahead and flip to Luke 24. This morning we're going to look at Bible reading. Bible reading. Hebrews 4 we'll come to in a minute as well. But Luke 24, I just want to read Luke 24 right now. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Luke 24, verse 13. And these are the words of God. And behold, two of them were going that same day to a village named Emmaus, which was 60 stadia from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had happened. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself approached and was going with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are discussing with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a mighty prophet in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be sentenced to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us astounded us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and not finding his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and it happened that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and after breaking it, he was giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And they stood up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven, and those with them, who were saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they were relating their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious, holy Father and God of all mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through Christ our Lord. And amen. Amen. You can be seated. We've talked quite extensively about the various aspects of life in God's church. We looked at what the church is, what the church does, and how she is to approach God in, in worship. We have also considered the various tools God has given us in order to organize ourselves for a worshipful obedience. Music, preaching, governance, tithes, uh, and public prayer. 
And on top of this, we have two sacramental means of grace, these covenant signs and seals, baptism and the Lord's Supper. As mentioned earlier in the series, the church has an ultimate obligation to God. We have an ultimate obligation to God, and that being covenantal faithfulness and purity in worship. But we also, the church, she also has an obligation towards the world. And many people today forget that we are obligated to do something with and for the world. That is, we're supposed to disciple them, to baptize them, and to teach the nations how to obey all that Christ has commanded. So we have an obligation to God, we have an obligation to the world. And how that particular task of cultural renewal is going to happen, how that works itself out, we're going to consider that in a few weeks when we close out uh, the series. But this morning, I want us to consider the topic of Bible reading. How are we supposed to read our Bibles? How are we supposed to read our Bibles? What dynamics are in play when it comes to faithfully reading the scriptures that God has given to us? And I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm assuming several things, and I can't cover them in detail, but there are three important things that I'm just going to assume. And that's the first is the Bible is the inscripturated word of God. So I'm just going to assume, I'm not going to argue for that, it's already something we understand here. And so the Bible is the inscripturated Word of God. Its origin is divine, and like God, it is self-explanatory. So God himself is self-explanatory. He needs no reference point to explain him. And the Bible is the same way, meaning that no authority stands over it. Because the, the inscripturated word comes from the Holy Spirit, it is likened to God in that sense that it's a product of God, and therefore its explanation is, is already you know, sufficient in and of itself. So no one stands over the authority of Scripture except for God who wrote it. And God speaks, we know, because God himself is word. So I'm assuming that. Second thing I'm assuming is that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Those three I's, inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. That is, the Bible is breathed out. When we say inspired, or the doctrine of inspiration, God breathed it out, or you might say it's spirited out. It's this unique word Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3.16, theopanustos. It's God breathed, it's spirited out by God. And it's the Holy Spirit's written gift to man. So that means it's inspired in that way, but it's also inerrant, meaning it's without error. It doesn't actually have errors. But more to the point, it's infallible, meaning it's impossible to make any errors. So we hold those things to be true. It's inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Peter Leihart says it like this. He says, The Bible, the physical book made of nothing but ink on paper, is the product of the Father speaking by word and spirit. Scripture is God's words in human words because our God is omnilingual, a speaker of every human tongue. God is omnilingual. Third thing I'm assuming is that the Bible is authoritative over everything about which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. Almost a direct quote from Cornelius Van Til. The Bible is authoritative over everything about which it speaks. It's authoritative over everything about which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. 
So faith for all of life, scripture for all of life. <laughs> that is all of Christ for all of life, all of scripture for all of life. Now it is utterly sufficient to guide us. The Bible can guide us, it can direct us, it can mold us into the image of Christ. That's what the power of the word of God does. Jesus is Lord of all. Uh, therefore, there are no Bible-free areas that are off-limits. Uh, as Ron said to my African friends when we were there, there's no Jesus-free zones. <laughs> there's no Scripture-free zones where there's a placard that says, you may not use the Bible in this area. Now, these things I'm presupposing, and so well, let's get to the text. We're, having said that, we're going to build on that, but let's learn how we can better read our Bibles. In Luke 24, we have the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that story is unique to Luke's gospel. It's not in the other three gospels. And it's one of the more remarkable narratives in the New Testament. It's a phenomenal story. There's so much we could talk about, we can't talk about it all. Two disciples were traveling to Emmaus from Jerusalem, traveling roughly seven total miles, a seven mile walk, verse 13. After they were discussing the events of Easter weekend and the political hotbed that was Jerusalem, Jesus approached them, though they didn't recognize him. So there's another man who, and, and they traveled, many of them together in, in groups, and so there were several of them probably present. At that point, a third man comes, and it's Jesus. They don't know, and he starts talking to them. He asks, I love this too, uh, he asked what they were discussing, playing it off like he didn't actually know. Um, what, are you, what, are you, what are you discussing? He's, you know, they're assuming him to just be another traveler. What are you, what are you talking about? Luke notes in verse 17, 17 that they were sad. So their disposition is important. They were very, very sad. That tells you what they were hopeful for. Something didn't come to fruition that they wanted to see come to fruition, but they were sad about it. Cleopas, we know the one name, he responded with shock. He says in verse 18, how could you even remote, be even remotely close to Jerusalem and not know exactly what went on? What are you guys talking about? I mean, it's like, what is everybody talking about on January 7th? <laughs> January 6th. You don't know? <laughs> uh, an insurrection, they say. Um, so they're discussing it, and, and he responds like, How do you, you're coming from Jerusalem with us. You didn't see what just went on for the past several days? It was utter chaos. Now Jesus plays along. He asks, you know, what are you talking about? They explain that Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a revered prophet. He was put to death. So everybody knows what happened to Jesus the Nazarene. He was put to death. And they were sad because they had hoped that he would redeem Israel. And curiously enough, it was the third day since it all went down. In verse 21, we're told it's the third day. That's Sunday. That's resurrection day when this conversation is happening somewhere between Jerusalem and Emmaus, somewhere on that seven-mile hike. Now, they heard about women coming to the tomb earlier that day and not finding the body. They had heard that there, they had seen an angelic vision. Okay, that's verses 22 and 23. So they, they knew some of the things, not just what happened on Friday, but what happened the morning of that day. And as the story goes, their understanding is that some went to the tomb only to find the body missing, verse 24. 
So saddened by Jesus' death, they're now perplexed by the missing body. Now, in verse 25, Jesus bursts out into a mini-sermon about their slow-going faith. Clearly, the Christ was to suffer in accordance to what the prophets had said, and clearly he was to enter into his glory. That's in verse 26. So starting with Moses, starting with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and moving through the entire Hebrew Bible, Jesus explained and interpreted the scriptures to them, unlocking the fact that they spoke of Jesus. That's in verse 27. What did that conversation go like? Remember the thing about Adam and Eve? Yeah, remember the flood? Yeah, remember Abraham? Yeah, remember, like, and he just goes down the line. All of that spoke to me. Here's how. I would love to have heard that conversation. People, what are you going to talk about in the new heavens and new earth? I want to find these guys. What was that conversation like? <laughs> and, and we learn from this that Jesus reads Torah. He fulfills Torah. Jesus is Torah. He is law. He is wisdom. He is the teaching, the way, the truth, and the life. Nearing the village of Emmaus, so they're almost to the seven-mile end, end of that walk there, Jesus acted as though he were going to keep going, verse 28, which is funny. Where are you going? <laughs> the two disciples urged him to stay and spend the evening with them. That way he can rest. And this is hospitality at its, at its finest. In verse 29, Jesus agrees, so he's going to stay. And while eating their meal, Jesus offers up the first post-resurrection Eucharistic communion meal. Breaks the bread, gives it to them, verse 30. And after receiving the bread, and we may assume that there was probably wine involved, there's liturgical overtones here, the breaking of the bread and the, the significance of that meal. He says in verse 31, or it says in verse 31, their eyes were open and they recognized him. It took the breaking of the bread for them to recognize him. Jesus vanished from their sight immediately as soon as they recognized him. He was gone. So, teleportation of sorts. There's a theory about what resurrection life really is going to be. Can you just think of a place and then go there? I like to think that would be the case. But afterwards, they reflect on their experience, and their hearts were burning while on the road while he was explaining the scriptures, verse 32. So Bible, Bible reading is meant to give you heartburn, essentially. Um, they went straight away to Jerusalem, right away. So who knows, it might have been evening by that point, but it didn't matter. You try not to travel too much at night, bandits, robbers, you know. But they did anyway. They go straight back to Jerusalem, traveling all night in order to find the disciples and tell them the story of what happened. That's verses 33 through 35. And notice in verse 35, And they were relating their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. This is a liturgical revelation, a recognition in the Lord's Supper that Jesus is Lord of all. And the Bible belongs in liturgy. Liturgy is the work of the people, a way of life, a way of living, and liturgy has to be shaped by the Bible. We'll come back to that. Flip to Hebrews 4. Once you get past the letters of Paul, you'll finish with Titus, Philemon, and then you'll get to Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Now, when we speak of the word of God being living and active, that something that pierces and judges, we are speaking of the power of Christ and the authority of God as a sovereign. The word of God has to be proclaimed. And when it's proclaimed, we can trust, no matter the hostility, and some of that we experienced last week at GMU, but no matter the hostility, we know that the word of God is what goes forward and it's living and active. So if we're faithful to that, it's, up, it's God's work, it's the Spirit's work. Consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, which says, For you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. These writers saw the word of God as something that's living, something that's active, something that moves, something that's energetic into the world. Something happens when the word of God is proclaimed. You Today, here sitting here, we're born again by that living and active Word of God. So when Christ changed your heart, that was a moment of, of living and enduring Word going into your heart, changing it, and making it beat for the glory of God. So it is the living and enduring Word of God, spoken through the mouthpiece of Christ, administered by the Spirit, and, and we can say clearly in the case of Luke 24, um, through the sacraments, through the Lord's Supper. It's upheld in the church's worship, in the work of the church, the liturgy of the church, and it goes forth into the world to make men born again. So the, this word of God renews people, and then when we have renewed people, then the world is renewed, and it makes the liturgy, like when we confess our sins here, we want the world to confess their sins. We're simply modeling it. We're doing what Christ wants us to do, but we want the world to do it. And so that's, that's how we uh, see the word go forward. The power of the word that we experience, we share and pass on to the rest of the world. So no one is hidden from God's sight. Everything is laid bare. God sees everything, Hebrews 4 says, and thus we have to give an, an account. Now, this may be unfamiliar, but perhaps you've heard this before. The language of cutting and piercing the, the joints and the marrows, that's actually Old Testament language. And when, a, when the worshiper brought his offering, his sacrificial animal, as we see in Leviticus 9, the sacrifice was to be cut up a certain way. So the priests were actually really good at handling which parts of the animal were which parts. And they knew, they knew that. God had told them and showed them. Certain portions of the animal that was cut in the sacrifice was to be uh, burned up on the bronze altar. Certain portions were to be cut off and then burned outside the camp because they were considered unclean aspects. And certain portions were consumed by the worshiper as in the peace offering, the fellowship meal that happened at the end. But the idea of cutting with a sword or a knife ought to remind us of this Levitical liturgy. When the ancient Israelite brought his offering, the animal sacrifice was the substitutionary sacrifice. It was as though the word of God was cutting him apart as well. 
the animals being cut apart down to the everything, it's, that's him. If you were there, that would be you. You were being cut apart by the word of God. You were being laid bare before God and offered as a sacrifice. The fire of God's glory would come down and consume the burnt offering. That was you. It was as if God was consuming you on that offering table. The burnt offering, the ascension offering, represented the worshiper going into the presence of God. So he was the one being cut to the heart, while the animal was being carefully cut to pieces, down to the joints and the marrow. The worshiper was watching while the priest would help him in this liturgical exercise. And the animal was him. The whole time he was offering the animal, it was, that, that's me. I'm the one being cut by the word of God. I'm the one being offered as a, as a sacrifice to God. That animal's dead, and I'm alive, but that's my living sacrifice. I'm still living. That is the sacrifice that dies. So the, the sword or the knife represented the word of God. And the word of God, when you're pulling apart and cutting at that animal, that is an uncovering of sin. It's a revealing of your sin. It's a purification of the worshiper. And you bring yourself near to God's eternal presence. Now, I say all that, somewhat graphic imagery, because that's what the Word of God, that's what the Bible is supposed to do. That's what the Hebrews is saying. The Bible, the Word of God, is that. It's supposed to cut you deep. You're supposed to read it and be cut to the heart. And indeed, when it is read and when it is preached and proclaimed, that's exactly what happens. We look to Christ through the Word, and we see ourselves on the cross. We see ourselves up there crucified with our sacrificial lamb. That's why Paul can say that it was him who was crucified as well with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live now in obedience, to paraphrase. So how, how shall we then live? We have to remember that long before we encounter and read the Bible, we are already participating in the historical work of redemption that the Bible teaches. Long before you open up a Bible, you're already in this story. You're already in the narrative of history. And this is true for everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. Unbelievers find themselves in God's world, breathing God's air and participating in God's historical development, not on their own volition, as much as I had to talk to this guy last week, he was committed to evolution, pretty hardcore. And he wants to say that things matter, but he can't tell me why they matter because you're just, you know, a meat bag walking around. Like, what is this? And, but they're breathing God's air. He, he's, he's living as an image bearer and he's in total denial of that reality. So we, they don't live on their own volition or on the volition of some pond scum that just happened to walk up and grow legs. That is not, that's not their doing. But they're living by the same power that brought everything into existence. They have their existence in God, who is the creator and sustainer. Now, as we've noted before, we have the creative word of God. That's spoken at creation. The creative word of God, when God spoke, let there be and there was. We also have the incarnate word of God. That is Jesus Christ, the Son, second person of the Trinity, 
and we have the inscripturated Word of God, the, the Holy Bible, inspired by the Spirit, brought into existence because of the Holy Spirit. So this Word goes forth, and it brings things into existence that were not. That's the key here. When, when in Genesis 1, when God speaks, he brings things into existence that were not there. He didn't have to throw together, well, here's the periodic table, it's already existing, let's just make a sun out of it or something. Not what happened. There was nothing there. No space, no time, only the eternal presence of God. And God spoke, and suddenly there's this place called space. There's these things called stars. There's these things called the earth and the sun and the moon. So that creative word brings things into existence that were never there to begin with. And it interposes for a world that's gone awry, and it's written down so that mankind would have record of God's saving acts. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God speaks into existence. Through Christ, the Word of God interposes for sinners. And then in the Word, it goes forth, and we have a record of God's saving faithfulness. So the Word transforms hearts, and indeed it creates new hearts out of nothing. In uh, Psalm 1, excuse me, as a side note, Psalm 51 Remember when David asked God to create in me a clean heart? Um, that word create, bara in Hebrew, it's the same one in Genesis 1. He's literally echoing Genesis when God would create out of nothing. David's saying, give me a new heart out of nothing. Because what's there is broken and tainted. And I need a complete overhaul. I need a brand new heart. Additionally, it is through the power of the word of God that we come to be able to read the word of God. It has to be, it's through the power of the word that we can then read the word. At the moment of fertilization, an image bearer is brought into existence by the power of God's creative word. That person is immediately caught in a historical circumstance. He or she in the womb is alive, body and soul, and is now located in God's redemptive plan in some capacity. Should the child survive the abortion holocaust and now the hormone therapies, he or she now grows up learning about creation, learning about self, and learning about the rest of the world's thinking and doing, already brought into this existence that they did not ask for. But one thing this person, whether that is a believer or an unbeliever, one thing this person cannot do is escape the living and active word of God. Before ever reading the Bible, she is a product of the power of the word of God. And she is living her life within the spatial and temporal conditions set forth by the word of God. It's inescapable. That's why when you do evangelism and apologetics, you're not... It's, it's been said, it's like somebody coming up to you and saying, I don't believe in words, and they're using words to tell you that they don't believe in words. And it's the same thing when you talk to somebody who's an evolutionist or a naturalist, however they want to frame it, you're talking to them and they're wanting to, they are actively suppressing the fact that they bear God's image, and your job is to not believe them when they tell you what they think. <laughs> I don't believe you. Here's what reality is. But but it goes back to the Word of God. The fact that that person is standing before you is evidence of the power of the Word of God. They are made in His image. That is an image that can only come from God's power in God's Word. 
Only after an encounter with the living and active Word of God, through conversion, through regeneration, does one then have the eyes to see the Bible the way it is intended to be read. That's why an unbeliever can read the Bible. Think of Augustine, who got saved reading Romans. Not a believer. Reads Romans, encounters the power of the Word of God, then sees Romans the way it's supposed to be read. That is conversion. That's the power of the Word of God. So I say all this because long before we even open up our Bibles and and read it, we need to realize that the Word of God reads us before we read it. The Word of God reads us before we read it. In other words, whether or not one is a believer is irrelevant to the fact that God's Word sets the terms and conditions of life. So we're already caught up in this redemptive plan. But it's like fish in water. It's fish in water. We are in God's tank, swimming in the grip of God's Word for creation. The Bible But the Bible needs to read you first. You need to be captivated by the power of the Word of God. Your will must be bent to its demands. Your emotions must conform to its truth. Your mind must be shaped by its revelation. Your entire life must be molded by its wisdom. And that's how you read the Bible. It forces you to step out of your own head for a moment in order to see things the way the Bible sees things. You're not just reading ink on paper like it's another book. You're not. You are going there to encounter the Word of God that you've already encountered, either in creation as an image bearer or through the special giving of grace in salvation. But long before you're reading the Bible, the Bible's reading you. It is telling you what is already there. You just show up, Johnny come lately, right? And oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. See, this is incredibly important for your own life. The disciples on that road didn't recognize Jesus for who he was and who he is until Jesus gave thanks and broke the bread. They were already in the grip of the Word of God. They were already walking with Jesus, the one who spoke things into existence at creation. They were walking with Jesus. They were speaking with Jesus. But what was the problem? They didn't know it was him. They were already there. They were speaking with the Word of God made incarnate before their hearts even knew who He really was. They were blinded from recognizing Him. But only after they encountered the bread, the liturgy of the bread, we might say, did they then understand. And after they knew, they realized, oh, that was the heartburn I was experiencing. It wasn't something I ate. Oh, yes, our hearts, they were on fire, weren't they? When he was talking and unlocking the scriptures. Wow, what an amazing revelation here for them. Jesus reads the Bible for them. He encounters, or he centers it rather, on himself. And then he sits down and then he makes sense of the food. Why is there bread and wine here? Let me tell you what the bread and wine means. Which, again, incidentally makes sense, makes great sense because he's the bread of life. And this is why we can't divorce the Bible from liturgy, why we can't divorce the Bible from all of life, why you cannot divorce the Bible from anything. This is also why Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So we should want to be under the power and the sword of God's Word. 
We want to be under that sword. That is a knife you want to be under. In the assembly, in worship, and at home, on the couch, reading on the back porch with some iced tea, whatever the case is, whatever your fancy, all of life is to be lived under the scalpel of God's holy word. And those who are underneath the persuasive power of the word of God, having their hearts regenerated by the spirit, are those who want to be in the word so that their hearts can be cut and fashioned into the image of Christ. You should long for the word of God. You should long for it. You must want the Bible to cut you to the heart, to the core of your being. That's how you're changed, friends. That's how you're changed. There's no magical thing. How do I change? How do I grow? How do I become more mature in Christ? Well, just wish it were so. <laughs> no, you have to be in, in, in an active encounter with the power of the Word of God. And the means by which God uses that is Scripture, prayer, the church, the fellowship of the saints, and so on. Now, Scripture should always have our attention. I think I've made that clear. The focus, it should be the focus of our eyes. It should be the, we should be listening with our ears. It should be the meditation of our hearts. And the taste which comes from our tongues, we taste the word, we see the word, we encounter the word. Word and sacrament go together. That was one of Calvin's big arguments. The preached word goes with the consumed word. And it's the word of God covered in prayer. It gives us the bread of life in the supper. See, the Spirit of God is our teacher. The Spirit of God is our teacher, leading us into the library of God's sovereign goodness. So you, dear church, you must love the Bible. It's your medicine, your bandage, your healing. The Bible is your pair of glasses helping you see. The Bible is our roadmap, helping you understand where it is you are currently located and where it is you are going in your family, in your marriage, in this world. The Bible is our treasure, which finances our lives so that we might live to the glory of Christ, fearing no man, but instead knowing that we are rich. We have everything we need in Christ. Simply put, the Bible as your supreme authority is the breath of God put to ink and paper so that you might find Christ to be supremely glorious. You want to read your Bible? Find Christ to be glorious. More glorious than anything the world has to offer you. Now, we need to be able to read our Bibles both corporately and individually. It's not either or, it's both. We should be feeding ourselves at home. We should be finding nuggets of truth at home, pondering them, meditating on them, all right? We should be doing that, and we should also be fed in the assembly. So we want our senses trained so that we can discern good from evil. That's what the Word does. We want our hearts molded so that our affections can be set straight. And this means there is a multi-perspectival approach, shall we say, to reading your Bible. And you don't have to write these down, but I'm going to have something momentarily for you if you like to write. But first, the Bible does give us history. That's the literal understanding of Scripture. The Bible gives us history. It's historical, helps us interpret history. The second thing is the Bible tells us what to believe. And in that sense, it's, you could say it's an allegorical sense of understanding Scripture. It helps us know what it is we're supposed to believe. It takes the words that are written, puts them together, and teaches us what we're supposed to believe. Third, it tells us what we're supposed to do, the tropological understanding of Scripture. 
you read the Bible and you're supposed to do certain things like thou shalt not murder. And then lastly, the Bible tells us what to anticipate in the future in terms of hope and eschatological trajectories. Where is history going? And that is the anagogical understanding of Scripture. So it tells us history. It tells us what to believe. It also tells us what we're supposed to do. And it tells us where the future is going. What is God intending to do? And contrary to our modernist assumptions, the Bible is much bigger than simply exegeting Greek words and thinking nice thoughts. It's bigger than that. Bible reading requires a whole lot of things. It requires us to pay attention to the grammar of the text and how it's strung together. Um, it, requires to, it requires us to notice that there are a lot of ideas that are woven together. They're alluded to in other places. Oftentimes they're direct quotes. Um, Psalm 110.1, most quoted verse in the Old Testament that's quoted in the New. You see these echoes of Scripture in the New Testament that go back to the Old, like in Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active, is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. Oh yeah, temple, sacrifice, goes right back. So when we read the Bible, we have to be able to, to see those things. Um, a good Bible reader is able to identify certain themes throughout Scripture, th certain themes of justice and righteousness and all these uh, symbols or echoes of other places. Good Bible readers are committed to doing a deep dive while prayerfully considering how the Scripture shapes us as worshipers of God. And the best, I think, the best Bible readers are the ones who are read by it the most meaning they're the ones who have been shaped by it the most. I think it was Spurgeon who said, uh, a man whose Bible is falling apart belongs to a man whose life isn't, something of that nature. But that's the function of, of, of liturgy and Bible reading and preaching. We want to have the sword pierce our hearts. And so you can come and you can listen to the word preached. It's read, we recite it together, and you could literally walk away and say, well, I've learned nothing. I wasn't engaged at all. But was your mind even here? Was it thinking about everything you have to do this week? Were, were you really stopping and thinking? And, and some are note takers. I was not ever a note taker in college and seminary, never cared about notes. I was, feed me, it's a sponge, it'll stick, I promise. But maybe you should take notes. Maybe as you're reading your Bible at home, take notes, underline things. Those are good options for you. But we need to understand the story of redemption. We need to know that Jesus is greater than Adam, than Noah, than Abraham and David. That's what he told the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We need to know that the trajectory of history is God's management in terms of the covenant. So you can tell the time. What time is it? Ah, oh, yes, it's God's judgment time on America at the moment, right? You have to be able to know the Bible to look at that and say, yep, right on time. We deserve far worse, you know? Um, God steers history through sanctions of the covenant. So we need to know what Deuteronomy 28 says, what Leviticus 26 says. We need to understand the history that, of, of what took place. So we can see, for example, in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, it's fulfilled in AD 70, and yet it's eschatologically profitable for us to determine our own lives and say, hmm, God did it then. What's to say if we keep breaking his law, he won't do it again? Right? 
God judges with severity. We should learn that. And we have to dig into the words. You can dig into the original languages. We need to know what God expects from us. And that's what Bible reading is all about. What does God expect of me as a father, as, as a mother, as a husband and a wife, as a child? What does God demand of, of me? What is my life supposed to look like? We need to know what's poetry, what's history, what's narrative, what's prophecy. And, and most importantly, good Bible readers do not commit the error of eisegesis, reading into the text what the Bible does not say. We need to be good exegetes, top-notch exegetes. We need to pull out what the Bible says and what the Bible means. You see, solid food is for the mature. The Bible is solid food. Therefore, the Bible is to make us more mature. So we need to read the, the Bible spiritually, shall we say. That is, with the new eyes that were given to us by the Holy Spirit. We take it up, we read it, and we take note so that we can take it to heart. And we take it up so we can sing it, too. Singing Psalm 2 to the tune of Crown Him With Many Crowns is a little different flavor, but it's a good thing to sing Scripture. It's also for, it's not just acquiring information, it's also for your sanctification and your holiness so you can be prepared to do what God has in store for you so you can face your next storm, your next trial, your next evolutionist. <laughs> so you can be prepared and ready to go. So your family is ready to go if things are difficult. So your marriage can withstand a fiery season. You need to know that the Bible is meant to make you bulletproof. Houses belong on sturdy rocks. When reading the Bible, we find out what the passage says and what the passage says about Jesus Christ. We find out what it says about us. And we also find out about the fact that we're not always the hero. <laughs> and we also find out what it says about the future that God has for us. A missional reading of Scripture is, is so important today because oftentimes we forget that God has placed us here to do things to do things, to heavenize the earth. I'm going to leave you very quickly, and I'm going to run through these fast. Five important ways Bible reading makes you and shapes you. This is the core of the application part here. Bible reading makes you blank. These five things. Number one, Bible reading makes you equipped for every good work. Bible reading makes you equipped for every good work. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us the profitability regarding Scripture and its end being the equipping of God's people for every good work. We're supposed to do good things in the world, and the Bible is the main tool for helping us know what that looks like. So Bible reading makes you equipped for every good work. Number two, it makes you mature for every decision. It makes you mature for every decision. Hebrews 5 says, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. You can spend your entire life in the church, name the name of Christ, and be absolutely unprepared to make any decisions that may be, in fact, meaningful. Bible reading makes you mature for every decision. We need the Bible to train us for good works, for training us for discernment. We have to know what is good in the world, what is evil in the world, so that we can be on the right side of it. Every decision you make, buying a car, buying a house, going to college or not, that's a decision that requires judicial discernment. You have to make a serious judgment call on these things. And the Word of God helps us mature in making those decisions. Number three, 
Bible reading makes you humble for God's project. It makes you humble for God's project. Listen, humility is conducting yourself at the level of maturity you really are and not where you want to be. That's what humility is. It's conducting yourself at the level of maturity you really are and not where you want to be idealistically. It is humility before God that God uses to further his project of heavenizing the earth. And authority is service. You have authority when you serve, but, and, but service is humility. The proud will fall and stumble, the meek inherit the earth. But it makes you humble for God's project. Number four, Bible reading makes you joyful for God's people. It makes you joyful for God's people. When saturated by the washing of the word, joy in the Lord becomes our strength. We find joy in God and we find joy in others, or at least we ought to if we're reading the Bible correctly. Rather than developing an inferiority complex towards others, we learn to be joyful and we learn to be thankful in all things and we learn to celebrate others before celebrating ourselves. Leaders are servants, servants eat last. There's great joy in self-denial, and never forget that. Self-denial is how community actually works. It makes you joyful for God's people. And lastly, number five, it makes you armed for God's conflict. Bible reading makes you armed for God's conflict. The world is being held hostage by unbelief right now. Unbelief, however, is not a formidable enemy. Unbelief is a tree which is easily felled by the gospel. Reading the Bible means wielding the Bible as a sword to cut the world with gospel truth. And as people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to use the sword of the word to separate the evil from the hearts of men. So when we're shaped by scripture, we can thus use scripture which, of course, we want to make war against the lofty opinions and you know, perspectives of autonomous men. But Bible reading makes you, it shapes you, it transforms you into these missional warrior kings necessary to combat sin, necessary to worship God accordingly, and carry forth the gospel message into a world of darkness. And amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that your inscripturated word sits before us. We are an interesting time in history. Not only do we have more access to tools for knowing your word, but as a culture, we are largely ignorant of it. There is a contrast, Lord, that we confess that is true, that we can have multiple Bibles and we can own them, but never really read them and never be read by them. And we confess that is a great error because it means that we are choosing to go our own ways in our own power. And we ask that you would turn us from that. Help us instead to be mindful of what your word teaches us so that instead of being people of autonomy, we would be people of theonomy, people of your law and your word. So we ask for your spirit's grace and presence as this word goes forth, may it sanctify us, and as we approach the table, may we also be nourished by the bread of life. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.